And Bruce Plaggett in for Jill Bennett this afternoon. So 3 o'clock this afternoon, we are looking forward to that pandemic update. Dr. Bonnie Henry, Health Minister Adrian Dix, and the surprise guest announced this morning, I guess not so much of a surprise. Uh, we've certainly heard a lot of concern about this from teachers and parents. But Education Minister Jennifer Whiteside will be joining in that news conference. You don't bring in a name like that for no reason whatsoever. And uh, there could be some different news coming out of that, we might say. Richard Zussman is joining us from Victoria, Global BC reporter based at the legislature. Good afternoon, Richard. Great to have you in here. Yeah, Bruce, it's great uh, to be here and it's great to have you on uh, CKNW. Well, it's a pleasure to be here for sure and talking with the likes of you, someone who has been following this closely. Now, I know you've been uh, following some of the concerns from the BC Teachers Federation, talking about uh, whether it's okay to go back to school. What do you make of uh, Jennifer Whiteside coming into the news conference uh, or update, as you would have it, uh, this afternoon? Yes, he coached a little bit. I would expect there will be a significant announcement uh, from the province when it comes to back to school. We know there have been meetings going on through the last week, and the province has promised enhanced safety measures. I would anticipate we will get that. I also would not be surprised if the province decides to uh, delay the start of the upcoming uh, school session here. So we'll have to wait to three o'clock to find out the details. The BCTF yesterday called on the province to push back the start of school by a week to go online for that first week. I'm not sure the province is interested in going online for a week and then resuming in-person classes the week later. But considering we know very little about how Omicron spreads in a school setting, we also still know very little about the impact of Omicron on the school system in terms of how many staff and students and teachers in K-12 are actually getting sick. I would not be surprised if we get the start of school pushed back to January 10th to give the province a little bit more time to understand. Because one of the challenges here, Bruce, is going to be if a lot of teachers and staff get sick, it's going to force schools to be closed. And we've heard this line again and again from Dr. Bonnie Henry. What is happening in community reflects what's happening in schools. And we have never seen more COVID in our communities than we are now. And we expect never to see so much COVID in our schools as we have now either. So that extra week pushed back, if that's what is announced at three o'clock, would give the province some more time to assess and to figure out exactly how they are going to keep kids uh, and teachers and staff safe in a school setting. Richard, let's uh, pick up on that. It may be a case of close me now or close me later. doesn't really matter. Either you have it now or you have the rolling closures. Uh, That certainly has been the concern that you've been hearing and others have been expressing. Um, What has been the reluctance in here? We've seen it already announced in in other provinces. Is our provincial government uh, just a little bit more cautious? What are we seeing? Yeah, so we've been... A bit slow on a number of things over the last few weeks, and that could be for various different reasons. I think this uh, BC is unique in this uh, school committee that's been put in place for COVID. There are other jurisdictions that have it, but BC's has been working through this process, and we knew that we were not going to have a briefing between, you know, just Christmas Eve and today. So I think part of what we've seen is other provinces over the last few days have announced 
uh, a pushback in the start of school, and that's why we're getting BC school plan a little bit later than other jurisdictions. Uh, but ultimately, you know, all jurisdictions are facing these same challenges. And BC has been the most reluctant in the country to go online. Uh, we haven't done it uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. We were the only jurisdiction uh, in North America to go back into the classroom uh, in that uh, May, June period of 2020. And then starting up in September of 2020, we've kept kids in the class. I wouldn't anticipate that's going to change, but I would anticipate we could get new guidance on masking in the school setting. Uh, we could get potentially more guidance around filtration in the school system, although BC has been slow to react to getting those upgraded filtration systems, and then potentially that one-week delay or potentially longer in terms of the start of the school year to give public health uh, some lead time to better understand how to manage. And, and you, you bring up that point, right? Close me now, close me later. Both could happen. And and I think we should anticipate that there will be schools through January and into February that will be closed because of staffing shortages. Staff are going to get sick. Staff are going to be told to isolate if they're showing symptoms. Uh, staff are, some many aren't boosted yet and aren't eligible for boosters. So all of those pieces will be interesting to hear what the province says on that. And then because of all those factors, we're going to have, you know, uh, substitute teachers who are maxed out, education assistants who are maxed out. There's just not a lot of give in the system that was already short-staffed coming into a pandemic. Well, Richard, uh, one of the things that has been expressed as a concern by BCTF President Terry Mooring about uh, any mixed model with the um, learning at home again, it really turned into two jobs for teachers. Well, actually, two jobs for teachers, two jobs for parents at home, um, really maxing out the system at a time when some are already getting sick. Uh, so this may be even more of a pressure, I assume. Yeah, and one of the things that Dr. Henry has said all along is she believes that kids are safer in a school setting than at home because for some families, it's possible to transition seamlessly. You know, they have jobs that allow them to work from home, give time to their kids. Uh, some are parents that can dedicate all of their time to their kids, but that's rare, extremely rare. And in most settings, parents are scrambling to find options for their kids. And it means sometimes having them at grandma's and grandpa's one day and at a cousin's another day or at a friend's another day. And that is higher risk when it comes to COVID with all of these indoor interactions with very minimal uh, COVID policies in place. I know there's still concerns about the safety within the school. Physical distancing is nearly impossible. A lot of kids are not wearing their masks and are not wearing them properly. There are concerns about kids' interactions outside of the classroom and bringing all of that inside to the classroom. Dr. Henry gets all that, but the reality is that having kids in a uniform setting actually helps keep transmission down, uh, and, and it has been largely reflective of the uh, transmission trends we have seen in our community. But with Omicron being so transmissible, there there needs to be stricter measures in place around masking, stricter measures in place around following those guidance of washing your hands and physical distancing, and there needs to be stricter policies in place around ventilation in order to ensure that classes are as safe as possible. For, for sure. Global BC legislative reporter Richard Zussman. Now, Richard, uh, I must ask you if you can go back in your way back in time machine 
uh, to only a few hours ago. Uh, Before we even heard that Jennifer Whiteside, the education minister, would be coming into this news conference this afternoon, it was already going to be a bit of a big news conference uh, in terms of just the magnitude of what we've been hearing hearing anecdotally about cases. Um, Does this mean that there won't be any other news? Uh, What are we thinking? No, so this is going to be a substantial update, Bruce. This is the first since December 24th. We haven't gotten any substantial details on hospitalizations or ICU or vaccination or Omicron uh, in five days now. So expect to get those details. Expect to get details around surgeries. We're expecting also an update on uh, the booster shot program and what measures are being taken here in order to move that along. I know there are a lot of frustrated CKNW listeners out there waiting for their turn to get their booster. We know the boosters have a tremendous impact on preventing the spread of Omicron, but also preventing people from getting severely ill from COVID. So expect all of those issues to come up in the briefing. And then the questions, as you know, will be a wild adventure with all sorts of different issues approach. So there'll be a lot of things here. It's not just going to be about back to school, although I know that matters to hundreds of thousands of British Columbia uh, families. Uh, but there's going to be an intense focus as well on cases, pressure on our hospital system, uh, you know, rules around the CDC guidance, around isolation, that no doubt is going to come up, guidance around hospital staffing issues that continue to be a major concern. We've seen Quebec allow sick hospital staff, symptomatic hospital staff to actually work in the hospitals because they're so short-staffed. So I would expect those issues are going to come up as well in the briefing. Well, thank you very much, Richard, and all the best to you and your family and your lovely wife uh, going into the (laughs) new year ahead. And a good afternoon to you. I'm Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett. And ahead of that 3 p.m. news update on the pandemic in Victoria, where Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix will be speaking, they will be joined by, of course, uh, Education Minister Jennifer Whiteside, And that puts a whole new aspect on what will be talked about and announced uh, for this afternoon. There are concerns already being expressed by the BC Teachers Federation and rank and file teachers and parents about the return to school next week. Dr. Anna Wallach is a family physician and clinical, clinical assistant professor at UBC and, of course, a member of Masks for Canada And she joins us and we talk about some of her biggest concerns heading back to the school year. What are they? Well, my biggest concern is that the when school goes back on Monday or Tuesday, so that's in a few days from now, there's going to be no changes. That it's going to be as if it was when the kids left. in in, in a few weeks ago. And we know that with Omicron, we need more protection at the moment. If schools are to open to in-person learning, they must open safely. And we need to protect the kids. We need to protect the teachers and the support staff in the schools. What I would hope to see is an increase in the booster eligibility for teachers and staff, at least get them to get their boosters in. Ideally, and this one is a bit of a pipe dream, we'd like to see the age 5 to 11 be allowed to get their shots a bit earlier than just the eight weeks. Um, But certainly I'd like to see that, you know, in the background that the schools have been working on ventilation, filtration. We're in the middle of a deep freeze. 
it's not going to be possible to expect that schools are going to be operating with classrooms open, but we need to figure out how to get ventilation going on in the schools. So there are a bunch of issues here, and not to interrupt you, but just wanting to get back to the booster shot. Um, Is this a surprise to you that uh, it hasn't been a priority for teachers? It is a bit, because we know that teachers and other essential workers, but teachers for sure, were prioritized in the first few rounds. So when you're looking at their age category, they're going to be farther out than some of their peers in their ages. So lumping them back in the age categories for the booster shots means that they're further along from their protection. And we know from the Ontario Science Advisory Table, with two shots of mRNA, that current protection against Omicron has dropped to 14.9% from getting infected. It still has a very high protection against hospitalization and ICU care, but we're looking at you know, a, a fif- under 15% protection from getting infected. And that has implications not just for getting sick, but also for, for, for school staffing and, you know, rolling closures because there just aren't enough teachers to teach the children. And that can put, um, that, even that can, can interfere with children's learning. Now, one of the things that we're seeing on social media, a concern from teachers and parents, is that if there is this back to school, if it's not called off for next week, um, it's going to inevitably result in closures anyways. Is that the impression that you have, that there will be, as you say, the rolling closures? I don't know. I certainly, I know Nova Scotia has delayed their return to school because they wanted to see what's happening. I know in the UK, they're talking about sending full grade levels back home because of closures, because of exposures, and because of lack of staff, with the community numbers being so high. And they're high now without us knowing the actual real numbers. Um, They're already scarily high. The community transmission is so high, it's going to trickle down into schools. So it is possible that we will see this if measures are not taken to mitigate transmission in the community and transmission within school. Dr. Anna Wallica joining us and taking a look at the concern over heading back to school possibly next week. Well, that's the latest word, may change at 3 o'clock. Um, what about the schools themselves? Are you concerned that they may not be up to snuff uh, in terms of precautions? I know we were promised at the beginning of the year that filtration and um, ventilation was upgraded in schools. I am really hoping that that is still the case. I'm hoping that they used the break to be able to to look at that and make sure that we're still up to snuff, especially with not being able to open windows, um, mask mandates, and making sure that kids are wearing the proper masks. Now, cloth masks, some of these kids, and I have three kids in school, so I know some of these kids are still wearing the same masks that they wore last school year, so those masks, kids' faces grow, the elastic gets stretched, so the masks need to be fitted properly. But even cloth masks at this time are not enough to prevent, to prevent Omicron, so parents need to be looking at making sure that their kids' masks are upgraded for the best filtration, best fit, um, ideally N95-grade respirators, but that's not accessible to everybody. So if you at least get a, a mask that fits properly, then we can protect the kids. Finally, I'm going to ask you a question as a family physician because this does come up from people saying, um, 
well, not all people, but enough people saying Omicron is no worse than a bad cold. Is that the case? So it's too early to say um, what Omicron is doing. So what we are seeing is in the vaccinated population, and yeah, it, they, it does start off as if it is a mild cold. But we have to remember, for especially in the context of back to school, for children, the age 5 to 11 group, they've only had access to one dose. The under fives, the daycares and, and the, the, the junior kindergarten kids, they haven't even had their dose. And in the unvaccinated or even the partially vaccinated population, this mild cold doesn't exist. People who are unvaccinated are getting sick. Hospitals, ICUs are filling up with unvaccinated people. And so this is... So we can't dismiss Omicron just as a mild cold because the majority of people are reporting it that. And that's because majority of people are vaccinated and they're sharing their stories. The other thing is we still don't know the implication of long COVID. And long COVID is that when people get persistent symptoms past three months past the acute infection, we don't know what that looks like yet. And we know we're seeing it in kids in the UK. So it's we can't dismiss things out of hand, and we need to keep our vigilance up. And Bruce, plug it in for Jill Bennett this afternoon. Good to have you along. You heard it uh, in the last 20 minutes, some breaking news. The World Junior Hockey Championships, Edmonton and Red Deer, they've been canceled. The International Ice Hockey Federation has scrapped the tournament after three days of competition and also after players on multiple teams Return positive COVID-19 tests. So there you go. A lot of disappointed fans out there for sure, but a sign of just how bad this latest strain of Omicron is. And uh, we can expect more things like this, I guess, in the days ahead. Switching, well, pace a little bit and taking a look at, well, kind of the, the feeling that we should be doing something a little bit more responsible when it comes to how we treat our cups and how we get rid of disposable cups when we go to restaurants. Now, A&W Restaurants has had an exchangeable cup pilot project and some success over at UBC. This all ahead of Vancouver single-use cup bylaw. Joining us to talk about uh, not only the success, but how it worked and how it came about is Julia Cutt, Director of Brand and Digital Marketing at ANW Canada. Julia, thank you so much for joining us. Tell me a little bit about the uh, program, first of all, and how it worked. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so, yeah, I we've started a pilot program, and it's called the ANW Cup Crew, um, and it really is just an exchangeable cup program. So, you as a, a customer to um, many of our restaurants here in the Lower Mainland, so the Greater Vancouver area, you go in and when you order your drink, that's your hot drink or even your cold drink, um, and you can just ask to join the cup crew and you'll get um, a plastic reusable cup for your drink. Um, and then you also get a discount for using that cup. So to purchase the cup the, the first time is $3. And then every time you bring the cup back and, and exchange it, um, you get a 20 cent discount on your beverage every time after that. Now, this is something that I've actually seen, if I'm not mistaken, at uh, even 7-Elevens before. Uh, I mean, the, you can purchase a cup and then come back and fill it up. How is this uh, unique uh, in the restaurant business? 
Yeah, so I would say that what's unique is the the kind of circular model we're using. So instead of you just, you know, buying that cup and that's your cup that you keep and you, you know, you wash it at home, you bring it back, we're actually, um, you exchange the cup. So you bring that cup, you maybe leave it in your car, um, you visited the drive-thru, it sits in your car until the next time you visit A&W. Um, and then when you bring it back, we actually take that cup that you've used, we take it away, we wash it, and we give you a brand new cup um, that on that new visit. So um, I guess what's unique to us is we have dishwashers at all of our restaurants. So we have um, glass mugs that we serve our root beer in and other um, reusable items already in our restaurant. So we have this kind of unique ability to, to do the dishes, basically, to wash the cups and to, to keep um, offering clean ones to people when they uh, want to participate in the program. Is this a lot of extra work for the people working in the restaurants to take the uh, cups and, I guess, wash them and uh, do everything else that they're already busy with? Yeah, one of the great things about this program is it's not really any extra work. So we, we already do dishes. Um, staff are already running the dishwashers um, during their day. So it's just, you know, throwing in some different cups um, as they're doing the dishes. But no, it, it's not really much of change in the restaurant, which is nice. Now, this has been a pilot project at UBC. One outlet or more than one there? Yeah, so we're actually testing um, all over Greater Vancouver right now. So there's about 20 restaurants, 20 A&W restaurants. Um, UBC has actually just been one of the locations where we're seeing lots of excitement. So we have um, about 2,000 people across Vancouver who purchased a cup and, and joined the program. Uh, about 600 at the UBC location alone. So it's been it's been pretty inspiring to see the mostly students around that UBC community get excited about the program and, and bring their cups back again and again. 600 out of 2,000 at UBC alone. So uh, probably not... Um too much of a surprise. You have students that are very uh, environmentally conscious, I guess. Uh, anything that you've learned or ANW Canada has learned during this pilot project? Yeah, I think we've um, honestly, we've been surprised at how eager guests are to participate. I think um, we've always tried to do uh, positive things for the environment or restaurants, but we're just seeing more and more guests saying, you know, this is important to them. They want to see it. So we're just excited to see guests asking for the cups, using them. Um, and yeah, it's been, we started at the end of September and have already seen 2,000 people join. So we're pretty happy um, with that progress so far. Before I even talk about uh, the next steps in this, uh, what is the business model like for this? Is it uh, terribly expensive for A&W to do this? Or is there, like, is there going to be savings? How is it going to work out? Yeah, one of the, the things about the program and the reason we decided to test in Vancouver is the um, the new bylaw that's coming into effect. So um, there will be a, a 25 cent fee on all single use cups. So that's the, the kind of typical cups that um, you know you, you, you see for takeout across the city right now. So um, as we're anticipating um, that new fee and, and we, we have to collect that and we'll have a bit of extra money in our restaurants. We imagine that that fee from our single-use product will actually allow us to start funding um, some of these reusable programs. So um, that's been pretty interesting for us to to get to anticipate um, that new bylaw and see how we can make it work in our restaurants. Julia Cutt is with a with A and W Canada, Director of Brand and Communications and Digital Marketing. We're talking about the new program, a pilot project that has been tried in Vancouver at about twenty different A and W outlets. Um, what is the next step for this? What uh, do you anticipate seeing at A and W? Yeah, so we're going to keep the program running um, all throughout twenty twenty two. Of course, as we see the 
the new bylaw come into effect in Vancouver, we expect to see a lot more people um, turning to this option in our restaurants. Um, and, you know, we're starting in Vancouver and we hope to expand it to um, other cities in BC and then other provinces and hopefully eventually across the country to all of our restaurants. Now, A&W Canada is separate from A&W that we know in the States, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Completely separate companies. Have you had any interest from other uh, jurisdictions outside of the country or are, even within the country? Is there interest? What sort of correspondence have you had now? Yeah, we've had, you know, lots of our franchisee and, and restaurants across the country said, you know what, we would love to participate. And we also are seeing just other cities and municipalities across the country starting to introduce similar um, single plastic or single use um, bylaws. So we see this just being, you know, from the government side, a program that's going to have to exist across the country for us. But um, we also are just seeing our, our, our franchise owners and even our guests saying they would like to participate in a program like this. Who came up with the idea? Yeah, um, so it's something we have been working on in the background for a while, but actually um, our partners at Coca-Cola um, were the ones that helped us find the right plastic cup and bring that um, bring that to fruition. So that was a pretty exciting partnership to get to work with Coca-Cola on. So in light of what's going to happen in Vancouver with the uh, cup bylaw, single-use bylaw, and similar things happening in other cities, we have some innovation in business taking uh, taking a bit of a lead with that. Julia Cutt is with ANW Canada. Thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate your time and uh, have a very happy new year ahead. Thank you very much. And Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett. Good afternoon. Nice to have you with us. This may be the calm before the storm, especially for those that head out on the highways. It's been a couple of days of almost a reprieve, certainly slippery conditions, but not the heavy snow that we saw over the weekend. That may be about to change. The forecast calling for maybe up to 10 centimeters of snow or more in some areas, especially heading into the interior and over the mountain passes. What does it all mean, especially for professional truck drivers? We've got one of them, Dan Dickey, on the line with us. He's out of Chilliwack. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. I understand it's been okay in the last couple of days, uh, but that might, might change, eh? Good afternoon, Bruce. Yeah, it's been good. It's, the road over there yesterday was mostly clear. Uh, some compact snow, but uh, it was kind of nice not having any cars to have to fight with over there. Now, Dan, you uh, do the Coquihalla Highway, I guess, uh, a fair amount, and uh, certainly have been around in the last couple of weeks uh, driving some of the uh, mountain passes into the interior. What have been the worst conditions that you've seen? What are they like? What are our roads like uh, going into the interior of the province when those snow snowstorms actually do hit? Well, generally, I'm out there overnight before there's any plows or any sort of highway maintenance and they're they're in pretty rough shape by the time most traffic gets out there's generally a level of compact snow on them with with some sort of abrasive on them but they, they're not horrible if people just calm down and drive to conditions it's it's not that it's not that bad to be driving on we have heard a lot about the coca highway in the last bit and even looking at that uh 
the Highway to Hell TV series and uh, and some of the concerns that uh, have been in there. Also heard from tow truck drivers talking about how that can turn actually dangerous. Um, do you do you actually see some of these dangers when uh, we get forecasts like uh, what we have right now, where up to ten centimeters could fall uh, before the day is through? You you see them. You see concerns and dangers and dangerous driving and 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 horrid conditions every day. Out, you know, once you get outside of the Lower Mainland, it's it's a it's an all day, every day thing in in a lot of areas for most for most of us. And some of the uh, worst drivers, who are they? In your opinion, you see them. I know you talk with other uh, drivers. Who are who are the ones that you have to worry about? Young, inexperienced drivers mostly, um, and a lot of a lot of older, you know, elderly drivers are in cars are, are what what concerns me. You notice over the last few days last week or so there have not been a lot of accidents over the Coquihalla I mean there's obviously there's been a lower a drop of of, of truck traffic over those highways over the last week and a half since they reopened it but there's also been less interaction between there's been no interaction between cars so a lot of times cars are doing dumb things around trucks and uh, and causing problems you know we, we noticed it when everything was shut down before and we're, you know, there's another example of it here where, where cars and trucks are somewhat separated and uh, the truck traffic seems to be moving along just fine without much incidents at all. Yeah, it's an interesting situation. Of course, what you're talking about is the Coquihalla Highway after the flooding issues uh, reopens, but uh, reopened only to commercial traffic. And for the most part, what that means is uh, truck traffic. So with only truckers out there and uh, people that know the roads very well, what you're saying is it's a whole different deal, eh? Oh, it's, it's, it's quite pleasurable, actually. The, there was a couple of short sections of repair work that are that are going on where the the roads really been restricted but overall you know the Coquihalla highway has been i think for a lot of sections uh for what i saw yesterday it was brought back up to the to the 120 kilometer an hour speed limit not that trucks most of us aren't aren't capable or aren't willing to not just because of the cost of fuel and the, and the added cost once you get over over a certain speed your fuel consumption goes right through the roof so but i mean the 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 roads were were quite good yesterday, you know, and, and quite quiet from hope to merit. And then, you know, once you got to, you know, merit, you get the people coming up Highway 3 and across or over from Kelowna and back. And so from merit, the Camels is considerably a little bit, considerably more hectic than it was in the, in the hope to merit section. Dan Dickey is joining us. He's a trucker out of Chilliwack. Uh, what kind of rig do you uh, drive? Uh, Freightliner, Cascadia. Um, a truck and single trailer, mostly. So a big enough truck that uh, you really do have to watch uh, those corners and uh, some of the bad conditions when they do hit. Um, but right now you're saying the Coquihalla Highway is in fairly good shape when the snow isn't in there and we haven't had the snow storms. All that, of course, can change tonight. Um, for those that aren't able to use a Coquihalla right now, 
were you surprised that they were able to uh, repair all that damage that quickly? Was that a, a bit of a shock uh, to truckers, or did you expect to have uh, the Coke opened uh, at all uh, over the holidays? I did not expect it to be open over the holidays, but I'm not surprised that it was open considerably earlier than was first expected. It's there. It's quite miraculous what these road crews are capable of doing when they when they're put you know when they put their feet to the fire and it has to get done. And I am I'm actually really surprised at the work that has been done and how well it's been done. You know, for just from what I saw last night. How does the Coquihalla stack up uh, for those that uh, drive into the interior and professional drivers compared to, say, Highway 1 or Highway 3? I know it's a lot uh, shorter uh, as a route, but as a uh, highway, even in the winter conditions, is it safer? Is it worse? What's the reputation like? I avoid it in winter conditions. If it's, if it's, if it's bad, I'll go up through the Fraser Canyon when the Fraser Canyon is open just because of the ability on a two lane road, you have a considerably more ability to, to control the traffic around you a little bit where you can, you can let traffic by you on the Coquihalla. It's, it's pretty much a free for all and, and is extremely dangerous in winter conditions. There's no ability for, you know, traffic can go by you anywhere they want. It's two to three lanes in each direction, the whole way. And there's no ability to, 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 to slow down traffic or to, or to keep yourself away from traffic. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you talk about uh, speed. It's also variable speed. I would imagine Uh, when you do have those cars on there and I've seen it myself. uh, I mean, I'm not a slow driver. I drive within uh well, close to the speed limit, I would say. But I get passed by people going extremely fast on the Coquihalla in uh, even the better conditions. Um, do you see any danger in that as a professional driver? Well, the problem is trucks go uphill at a greatly reduced speed from, from overall highway speeds. And that's just physics. That's weight to horsepower ratios. Nothing can be done about it. It doesn't matter what you make the speed on the Coquihalla truck traffic going uphill is going to be slower. And the faster that cars are moving around them, the, the closing rate when you're catching up to a truck at 120 kilometers an hour as opposed to 100 or 110 kilometers an hour is, is greatly increased, the, the closing, the rate of closing. And people, I don't think, are, are often prepared for that. And, you know, we've seen a, an increased number of rear-end type accidents on that section, on those sections of highway, on the high-speed sections of highway over the last, number of years regardless right and some final advice for uh both professional drivers and uh and others dealing with the snowy conditions of course uh the coquihalla is not an option for uh for the non-professional drivers right now but what's your advice for those that are heading out on the road and going to encounter snow and uh, some blizzard conditions potentially heading into this evening take your time slow down if you're not comfortable with the situation or you're not comfortable, pull off, take five minutes, take a break, get out of the group of traffic you seem to find yourself in if you're finding yourself stressed, and uh, take breaks. Don't be, don't be afraid to, to be 15 minutes later than you planned. Okay, thank you so much for joining us. Dan Dickey, a 
trucker out of Chilliwack. Stay safe, Dan. Uh, Stay safe on the roads and all the best to you and your family over the holidays.